<laughs> so this semester, we are going to be doing a three-part series with our guest, Sebastian D'Amico. He has been teaching um, in high school for 14 years now. He's married and has four lovely children. Um, our first one today is going to be No God. The second one will be No Jesus. That'll be on March 3rd, so mark your calendars. And April 7th will be uh, Why the Church. So make sure you guys upload your pictures to the group me to win those Lenten reflection uh, devotionals. And without further ado, let's get it started with Sebastian. Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, if you guys would join me, um, we'll begin in prayer, if for nothing else, for the Holy Spirit's mercy on me. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of who you are and who you have made us to be, for the gift of our intellects that can know you and read you in creation and within our own hearts. We ask you to be with us this evening as we seek to grow in friendship and fellowship with each other and to grow in knowledge and love of you. And we entrust this to Our Lady as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. Mary, Seat of Wisdom, and St. Therese. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, guys. Um, like he said, I've been teaching. I've had the good, the great blessing of getting to teach high school theology for about 14 years. And the, the reason I ended up doing that was because when I was your age, um, going to my Catholic campus center, someone was able to reach out to me and I was able to ask all of the questions that I never got to ask anyone else about the faith. And I discovered that the, in, in, in experience, right, this thing that maybe we've heard about, that faith and reason go together, that you can be a person of deep faith and a person of rigorous intellect, or at least intelligent, at least halfway intelligent, right? And that these two things don't have to contradict. And when I was able to ask my questions to someone who, who knew that and could answer my questions, man, it changed my life. And then you couple that with um, the friendships that occurred in buildings like this one, um, the, the conversations that happened over meals like the one that you're, you're eating right now. Um, those, those are my best friends. And so it's, it's always, always a joy to get to speak to, to you guys, especially because you're, you guys, as cliche as it sounds, you are the future, right? You're about to become, you are already adults, right? And you get to take your place in this greater world and the world needs, um, it needs your witness, to be perfectly honest. And in, in that world, there's a lot of pressure against the religious thing, against the Christian thing. Why would you believe in God? And the church is always taught really unequivocally that you can know that God exists from reason alone, right? That you don't have to be a person of faith to know that God exists. And that's, that's a deeply Catholic conviction. And, you know, it's one thing just to articulate that, that to say that, look, I'm, I'm Catholic, I believe in God, not because the church says so, but because it makes sense on a human level. That's a beautiful thing. And the world wants to know what that is. And, and this is very distinct from some of our 
non-Catholic brothers and sisters, um, we, we don't believe that it's just because it's in the Bible. We read the Bible, we know it, we love that. There's everything in that, in that text, right, that, that we are nurtured from. But we don't have to start with the Bible when we're talking to someone about God. In fact, if they don't believe in the Bible, that would be probably the worst place to start. Because you could say, well, well, look, it says right here that I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other. And they're like, great, I don't really care about your book. I don't care about what it says. I don't, I don't, that's not me. Where do you start? Well, lucky, luckily for us, right, the church has left us a wealth, a wealth of information on, on where to begin. So this first session on, on kind of defending or giving the reasons for our faith is on why God. So I wanted to talk to you guys about tonight just two, two proofs for God's existence. I've seen as many as 20. Um, and if you're interested in this topic, I've got stuff in those handouts that you can look at. Um, by the way, you, there should be enough copies for everyone at your tables. Those handouts, be sure to take one home. Um, we're not going to go over everything in that handout, but it's at least everything I do say will be in there. And there's plenty to go over after the fact. So that's, that's my... That's your, your, one of your parting gifts today. Um, that said, I want to say a few preliminary things about proofs for God's existence. What can you expect from a proof for God's existence? Um, maybe it's something you're familiar with. Maybe you've heard them before. Maybe you've, you haven't heard them before. Maybe you've heard them and you just wish you could articulate them better. Um, here's, here's some things that you should know about the proofs. They are not, they are not weapons against people who doubt. Um, they are not to be used... Um, to beat people over the head with. And you're probably not, it's going to take, take away the, the suspense, you're probably not going to convince anyone with the proofs, honestly. There may be a soul that may see like, oh, okay, well, Thomas said so, Aquinas said so, so I'm in. And if that happens, praise God. And that's one of the reasons why you should know these. But more often than not, my experience has not been that. The real reason that the proofs are helpful are for a couple. Number one, it's an honor to speak on God's behalf. And if you are ever given the chance to speak on God's behalf, to explain why, even, even, if, you get, even if you look like a fool afterwards, that's a privilege. So you need to know him for that, number one. Number two, the proofs are really helpful for people of faith to see that their faith is not unreasonable. That's really important because it gives believers a sense of conviction and it, because you see the solid ground that you're actually on when it comes, comes to the faith. And the third reason why we talk about the proofs is to take away the silly notion that Christians are unintelligent sheep. If you encounter someone and you can just reasonably listen to what they're saying, and if they can get to a place where they're actually willing to listen, there's many that are, right? And they can encounter a Christian where after that fact, they come away from it and be like, you know, I still don't agree with them, but, but they weren't stupid. And I kind of thought Christians were, were stupid. Um, if you can take that, if you can take that false notion away, now you're clearing the ground. And, and this is really why the, the proofs are so helpful. It's kind of like to use the, the parable that, that Jesus uses, right? If he goes to scatter seed, right, and, and it falls on some good soil and some rocky soil, apologetics and the proofs for God's existence is kind of removing some of the bigger rocks that are in the soil. That's why we use them. Does that make sense? So 
classically speaking, there's two basic categories for proofs for God's existence. Um, they both start with different kinds of evidence in the world, and they reason back to God. The first category is proofs that start with evidence outside of the human person. The first category are proofs that start with evidence outside the human person. Things like the beauty of creation, right? Things like the design of the universe. Things like motion in the universe. These are external things. The other kind of argument, you might guess just by how it's phrased, right, are arguments that start with evidence from inside the person. These are things like um, our sense of right and wrong. Um, the desire, the desire for something that's just not had. Um, these kinds of arguments. There are two very different kinds of arguments. I'm going to give you one from each category tonight, and then we'll have some question and answers. That's usually where the really good stuff comes from, okay? Um, so here we go. First proof. By the way, if you, if you want to follow along with this, I'm just going to be reading to you from or, uh, the basic outline of the argument. It's going to happen on page two. This is called, so Aquinas is going to give Classically, he gives five ways. Sometimes it's called Aquinas' five ways. This is, this is one of those ways. It's called, sometimes called the argument from contingency. The argument from contingency, and it kind of goes like this. Um, we notice that in the universe, there are two kinds of attributes to things. So there's um, what we call essential, essential features. And there's things called non-essential features. And I'll give you a good example. So everyone knows what that is, hopefully. Everyone knows what that is. And maybe just for good measure, it'll be a really awkward looking one, right? Um, so we got, we got three triangles, right? So this, the, the human mind, you don't have to be a, a, a Catholic or a believing person to realize that there's some things that are really important to make a triangle a triangle, right? A triangle needs three sides. It needs three angles. Those angles had better add up to 180 degrees. But other than that, all bets are off on how the triangle could look, right? In other words, there's things that are essential features for a triangle, and there's non-essential features for the triangle. So, Non, some examples of non-essential features would be like the size of the triangle, the color of the triangle, the actual measurements of the individual angles. Those can all vary to any degree within some parameters, right? Um, and, these, and at the same time, there's some things that if it's going to be a triangle, it better darn well have these things, right? Um, so you notice something important about these, right? If I tell my son, my five-year-old son, he's about to be five in about a week, Gabriel, if I ask, if, I, if I'm showing him these things and I'm saying, Gabriel, you're learning your shapes. Man, it's time to get some things straight. This is what a triangle is. And he goes, Daddy, why does the triangle have three sides? Why does the triangle have three sides? And it's clear to me that Gabriel hasn't quite understood what a triangle is yet, right? Because 
Gabriel, that's what a triangle is. A triangle is a three-sided figure. They go together. So the answer to that question is, Dad, why is, why is a triangle have three sides? Because that's what a triangle is. When you ask questions about essential features, it shows that you haven't really grasped what we're talking about yet. But Gabriel could ask, but Dad, why is that one triangle up there blue? And now we have a whole different kind of question. Well, Gabriel, you see, the reason, the reason that triangle is blue is because that happened to be the, uh, the color of the marker that I had, right? And he could ask, well, why is that blue? Well, it's because this thing's got blue ink in it, right? Um, the point is this. When you ask questions about non-essential features, you can keep asking questions until you come to a legitimate answer. Eventually, it's going to come down to, right, there's something that's inherently blue that you use to make that triangle blue. Does that make sense? So there's two kinds of features. The first kind of feature are, features are? Essential. essential features. And the other kind of features are called? Non-essential non features. Good. See, I'm a high school teacher. It, doesn't, it dies hard. Um, okay, so we got, this, we got this, this simple fact. We don't have to be theistic to believe these two things, right? Um, but we notice something else then. We look at the universe around us, everything in this universe, and we notice something very curious, right? We look at this couch and we notice that it exists. And we look at this chair, we notice that it exists. We look at this piece of paper, we notice it exists. And we look at um, this young man, this fine young man, what's your name? Brady. Brady, good to meet you. We notice that Brady exists as best we can tell, right? But we notice something else about Brady, the chair, the piece of paper, the table, all of these things. Existence is a non-essential feature of all of these things. Let me say that again. For everything that we can see in the universe, we notice that existence is a non-essential feature. In other words, we look at these things and we, presumably, these things didn't always exist. All of these things, the chair, the piece of paper, the plate, the table, and Brady, unless he's a very unusual human being, <laughs> They, he had a beginning, and sad to say, but all, all of these things will also come to a moment where they will not exist anymore, right? This existence will leave all these things. Some event will, will transpire, and this couch will probably be, will disintegrate. So will this table, and, and sadly, so will Brady, and so will I, right? And so will you. This means that our existence is a non-essential feature. So, we can ask questions about that. Where? Where did this couch get its existence from? And we start just like Gabriel was asking about my, the, my blue triangle, right? Um, why? Why does this couch exist? And we start to have to ask questions of what something else must have given it existence. And so too with the chair. Um, but then we ask this, and we can ask the same thing with Brady. Like, how did he get here? Well, presumably he had parents, right? But then that little question, we can ask it again. Do his parents possess existence as an essential feature? Did they always exist? Will they always exist? The answer is no. So we ask the question again. 
where did they get their existence from? And we go back and we start creating this chain, right? This chain of where the, the existence of this table, this chair, this couch, and this person is contingent, that's the where the word comes from, on other things giving it existence. Now, if this chain of, of, of events, if this chain of existence goes on forever, that does not actually solve the problem. It actually makes the problem bigger. Because we still have to account for where did existence come from? From whence did it come? If nothing in this universe possesses existence intrinsically, then we have to reasonably ask, where does it, does it get its existence? And if everything in the universe is like Brady in the chair, then we're going to have to start looking outside of the universe for the answer. There's got to be a something that possesses existence in its essence. There's got to be something that possesses existence in its essence outside of the universe and that thing we call God. That's the first, that's one of the proofs. One, before we, we sum it all up, um, let's use this. We'll pretend like this is a, um, like these guys are magnets, right? Um, let's pretend that this, we saw, you walked into this room and you just saw, let's pretend like these things were nails. You just saw this string of nails just hanging, hanging from the ceiling, just, just hanging, right? And you know that these nails, none of them are inherently magnetic, right? They do not possess magnetism as an essential, it's not essential for a nail to be magnetic, but these mag, excuse me, these nails clearly are magnetic. And you start looking at this chain of nails, right? And you look at this bottom, this blue nail, right? And you say, where does it get its magnetism? Well, there's got, it must be getting its magnetism from the one above it. But this thing doesn't possess magnetism either. Where does it get its magnetism? And you go up. And you go up, and then you see that the whole thing is just hanging from the ceiling, and you know that the ceiling does not possess magnetism either. So what do we, if we're going to really be logical about it, what would we assume is on the other side of this ceiling if these things are hanging? A magnet. That's perfectly logical. Now, can you see the magnet from where you are? No, but you can know... With, with certainty that there's got to be a magnet there. That's exactly how the proof for contingency works. That you look at everything in, like pretend the room is the universe, and you see the whole thing has all this existence, but nothing inside the room is causing it. So the only logical thing is that there must be something outside the universe that's causing the whole thing to happen. That thing we call God. There's a little box at the bottom of that page. Um, it says, summarize, excuse me, of page two, right? In the box provided, summarize what you have understood about the argument from contingency. I'm going to give you a, a minute to do that. If you've got a pen, borrow a pen. 
or if you don't have a pen, borrow a pen. I want you to try to put that in your own words. If you want to draw a picture, draw a picture. Whatever it takes for you to get that, those basic ideas, I want you to try your best to put that, put that on paper. All right. Um, very briefly, did anyone hear an answer that they liked? Or did anyone read an answer that they liked that they thought's worth worth sharing? Someone they thought was particularly succinct. Okay. Let me, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you made that mistake because that's actually not what I said and that's not what Aquinas says, but that's a very common misunderstanding of what Aquinas says. He says this, and if you made this mistake, you need to correct it. Only things that don't explain their own existence need an explanation for their existence. I'll repeat that. Only things that don't explain their own existence need an explanation for their existence. That's a subtle, subtle thing, but man, is it important. The mistake was everything, how did, what was the first sentence? Nothing can exist without possessing existence in its essence. It's also a mistake for a different reason, right? We exist, but we don't possess existence in our essence either. This is a lot of existence in essence, right? And our minds are already swimming in this. Um, this is important because... By the way, we, we exist, right, because something else gave us existence. We are contingent. Um, at the same time, not everything needs an explanation. Only things that don't explain their own existence need it. That may sound weird, but this is why. This is how it usually goes. And usually, little, like young kids can make this, this question, usually at an early age. They'll say, teacher, you just said everything needs a cause, right? And the teacher, if, if they're not on their game, might actually say, yeah, that's what I said. And then the kid asks, well, then what caused God? If everything needed a cause, then what caused God? <laughs> now, that, that child that said that actually did not understand. The teacher didn't articulate it well, and that's not what Aquinas says. He says not everything needs a cause, only things that didn't cause themselves need a cause. And everything in the universe didn't cause itself, so we look to something outside of it. I say that because sometimes we have struggled with those questions. Secondly, some of our, our brothers and sisters that struggle with atheism love to pitch that one, and it usually comes from people not ever really reading Thomas Aquinas or not understanding what Aquinas meant or having a misunderstanding of what was said in the first place. By the way, guys, this is how you learn to articulate the proofs. Like, you hear them, you think you get them, you try to articulate it, it comes out with some, with some sputters, right? And you get, you get it sharper. That's how you have to learn it. Th that's, that's honestly the only way I learned it, too. Um, so, at, at any rate, we will, at, at the break, I want you to, th well, I want you to take 30 seconds right now, and if you can, can you think of any objections people might give to this proof? And if you got them, write them in the second box right there. You'll notice I put the whole argument into three phrases. It says P1, P2, and C. That's, that's called, as many of you know this, it's a syllogism, right? It's the cleanest, most elegant way of articulating a logical argument. And 
the, the paragraphs that precede it are kind of the unpacking of that. You could unpack it in a million different ways. But if you, if you want, or if, you, if it helps you to see things just in one shot, looking through the handout and looking at those syllogisms will, will be one of the simplest ways to articulate it. And if you need it explained later, you can look through those paragraphs to, to see it there. That is one of the external proofs for God's existence. There's a lot more. Aquinas gives at least three others that are, are all external. But he also gives a couple that are internal. I'm going to just talk to you about one of them because I think... Once you hear both of them, you're going to sense when they might be useful and for whom they might be useful. Um, so if you would um, humor me and go forward. By the way, just I'll narrate as you go. If you go to page four, you'll find some answers to common objections. Don't read those yet. Uh, if you go to page five, here's a second argument from, ex from external things called the argument from design. Um, if you turn the page to page 7, here's some objections to the argument from design. Um, page 8, here's an argument against God's existence. We don't have time for that tonight. I'll let Father Nick teach you that one later. Um, number Page 10, you get the argument from morality. The one I want to talk to you, though, about is actually on page... 13. Bottom of page 12, actually. It's called The Argument from Desire. It is C.S. Lewis's favorite, favorite proof for God's existence. It shows up in a number of his works. If you are C.S. Lewis fans, you may recognize it. If you're not a C.S. Lewis fan, allow me to introduce you to your new best friend. Um, when it comes to someone who is able to articulate the Christian thing for the modern person. There are few people that are as helpful as Clive Staples Lewis um, for a number of reasons. He wrote fiction. He wrote, he was actually an Oxford professor. Um, so he was, he was no lightweight when it came to his intellect and he was pretty well respected. Um, he was an atheist at one point and had a conversion and he narrates all of these things and his fiction is some of the most moving stuff I've, I've ever read. Um, at any rate, he was good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien as well. Would have loved, if you, if you didn't know that, they used to get together and drink beer together. Um, had this group called the Inklings, and they would talk about true things. At any rate, um, this argument is, was one of, is one of his favorites because you can just see it in his writings a lot. Um, he'll, he puts it in kind of more poetic form. Here it is kind of... Um, well, even in a shorter form, from St. Augustine. Maybe you've heard this quote. Our hearts are restless, O Lord. Right? You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That argument, that one sentence, is actually a very condensed version of the argument of desire. Here's how it might go. When you look inside your heart you notice that there are two kinds of desires. There are innate desires and there are learned desires. Some examples that are innate to the human person. There is a desire for food. No one has to teach you to want food. If you are a functioning, healthy newborn, you have a desire for food. In fact, if you don't have a desire for food, the doctor says there's something wrong with this baby, right? There's a human desire for water 
as the person matures, there's a desire for friendship, right? There's a desire for sex. There's a desire for all of these natural occurring desires. There's always something to satisfy them in the natural world. There's water for thirst. There's food for, um, there's food for hunger. There's sex for libido. There's friendship for loneliness, right? There's these basic human, human needs. The other kinds of desires are learned desires. Like, um, I would really like a 4.0 GPA. I would really like to have a job that pulls down six figures so I can buy that car, my house. No one comes out of the womb wanting a 4.0 GPA. We had to teach you that, or we had to malform you to want that, actually. But the, in either case, right, you had to learn to do that. I want to earn an NBA championship. I want to win the World Series. I want to be a policeman. No one comes out of the womb wanting that. You know, you got to learn what a policeman is. You got to learn why the NBA championship's attractive. You got to learn why the Ferrari's a thing, and then you then you learn to want it, right? Now, there's some things like another example of a learned desire, right? Um, they can be for made-up things. Like I really wish I could meet a real unicorn, right? Um, that's a learned desire. I didn't. I didn't ever. I wasn't born with that desire. I had to like. Had to be taught it. But the interesting thing again is that for all of the naturally occurring desires, there is something to satisfy all of them. That's the first premise. The second premise goes like this: there is a desire in the human heart for something that is never found in this world. There is a desire in the human heart for something that is not found in the world. You could express this in a number of ways. One way we might ask is, why is it that no matter how good things are, why is it that I always seem to want more? Why is it that on my happiest days on this earth, there's always a desire that I wish that day would never end? And why am I always sad when it does? Peter Kreeft says, um, it's like we have a lover's quarrel with the world. We love it. We love everything it gives us. And we hate that it always seems to run out. Think about it. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend? And you're in the middle of this conversation and time just seemed to fly. All of a sudden, like, hours had gone. And at the end of it, you're like, oh, I don't want to leave. Or have you ever had a vacation and you just thought, I wish I never had to go back. I wish this night right now would never end. What's interesting is that this desire rears its head in the human heart, not on our crummiest days, but on our best days. Why is it that when we experience the most happiness, there's always something missing? There was, gosh, I am not a sports guy. I'm going to butcher this one. 
feel like it was Wayne Simeon. I feel like, yeah, I think it was a, that KU basketball player. He went on, uh, I think he played, anyone know? Who did Wayne Simeon go play for his first, his rookie year? No one knows. This is Emporia. They don't know that here. Um, so this is, his, this is his deal, right? He, NBA basketball player, rookie year, comes out of the gate, goes to the NBA championships, wins. First, first year out of the gate as a rookie in, in the NBA. Um, goes, they, it's an away game. They win away, and they come home. They come home to this massive parade. And they're, like, going down Main Street in the middle of their street, right? And... I mean, he's not even 48 hours after having won the most prestigious title that someone in his form of athletics can win. And immediately the crowd starts chanting, repeat, repeat, repeat. The dude didn't even have 48 hours to enjoy the win that he had. And they were already putting it in front of him again. Do it again. Do it again. Why is it that you and I experience this in the world? Because it's not just him that experiences that. Or here's another way to put it. You know, it would be really curious if a fish would complain about how wet it was in the ocean. Can you imagine how, how strange that would be? Like, ah, this, this water, I just can't get out of it. You know, like, I'm just, I just know I'm made for something more. And you're like, it's a fish, man. You're, you live in here. But you and I do that with time. Why are we always saying, oh, if I just had a little bit more time? Why does time always seem to run out? Could it be that you were made for something more than time? Could it be that you're made for eternity? And that's why you are not at home in this world. I probably betray my own bias to which argument I like the most. But I think that's immensely powerful for me personally. Well, I, I know that's immensely powerful for me. In other words, like if you had to boil it down to one sentence, thank you, Mr. Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Why is it that I'm in this world, I'm born this way, and every person seems to have this appetite for something the world cannot give. Conclusion, there must be something more than this world and that thing we call God. Just looking on the face of those two arguments, right? You probably sense how differently they move and already who, who they might be effective for. For someone that's incredibly scientifically minded, the, the argument from contingency or the external proofs for God's existence, or sometimes called, they're called the cosmological proofs for God's existence, may be very helpful. On the other hand, for someone that has a deep internal sense of who they are and is very self-aware, the psychological arguments for God's existence may be much, much more attractive. There's one proof someone has said, um, there is the music of J.S. Bach, therefore there must be a God. <laughs> Some people think that's incredibly powerful. Others are like, I don't get it. 
But for someone that, that feels that intuitively, that looks along the music, so to speak, you know what I'm talking about. It's like something, something broke in. So let's take it away. Yeah. Um, before I forget, though, these things, they were kind enough to put these out. We'll be back on March, Sunday, March 3rd, to do Why Jesus. Today was Why God, and obviously there's a lot more to this that we could do. Um, why Jesus is on March 3rd, April 7th, is Why the Catholic Church. So if you want to mark those on your calendars, I'd love to see you guys here. That said, um, this is the, the really interesting part, as always, when you have, you get to ask questions. So... I want to start us off. You can ask anything you want. It can be about any of the other proofs and the proofs we went over, an objection. What's going through you guys' heads? Yeah, great question. The question is, since we can't see what's on the other side of it, um, aren't we just, isn't the best thing we have an educated guess? The answer there is that it's logical. It's logical to conclude that it's something that possesses magnetism in and of itself so that it can be given. That's all that we're saying about that. So it's a little bit, maybe a little bit obtuse of an answer, right? But in the case of God, what, what we are saying is whatever's on the outside of this universe is the thing that's giving existence to the universe. Or there's got to be something on the outside of the universe that's giving existence to the rest of it. That thing, that source of existence, that's what we know has to be there. That's what most people call God. Yeah? The question was, and you tell me if I'm articulating this correctly, why couldn't someone say uh, the answer of what's called philosophical nihilism, that there simply is not anything that can satisfy that desire? You could say, and that is a legitimate answer philosophically speaking, um, you just have to then make the, the assertion that there's one naturally occurring desire for which there is absolutely no answer for, and it's totally unlike all the other natural desires. Which really, um, and if we're going to be perfectly honest about this, it makes the world an incredibly cruel place. But then, and, and that, that's a legitimate place to be, you know? That's, these arguments, you know, it's going to clarify what the actual issue is, and it means that someone who chooses the alternative is going to choose darkness in a much more apparent way. But even to be able to see what they're choosing is already helpful, I think. And, I th and I'm still put back to, do you really think the world's as bleak as all that? Would I argue that using this proof is simpler than using it as a proof for nihilism? I think, I think it could go both ways, to be honest. And I think we have to allow people to have that the freedom to choose that, you know? Yeah. Um, so the question, again, um, for our listeners at home, the question, in case you couldn't hear Father Nick's thundering voice, um, <laughs> the question is, since there are, there seems to be circumstances in which the whole has qualities that the parts do not, could you say that the whole of the universe possesses existence even though none of the smaller parts do not? Um, the answer that I would respond there is that seems to violate a basic principle that we know intuitively, the truth of, of metaphysics, that you can't give what you don't have. 
or in Latin, it, that, that phrase is worth knowing. You can't give what you don't have. In Latin, it's nemo dat quod non abit. You can't give what you don't have. It's, it's very simple and very intuitive. If I don't have a million dollars, I can't give you a million dollars. If I don't have a Memento Mori sticker to give you, I can't give you a Memento Mori sticker to give you. And let's say there was two of me and neither of me had a Memento Mori sticker. We couldn't give you another Memento Mori sticker even if there was two of me. What if there's a million of me? And if none of me have, if none of my group of a million has a Memento Mori sticker, we can't give you a Memento Mori sticker. So I don't think that 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 really satisfies the curiosity of, of the question of, well, let's say everything doesn't explain its own existence. Can't that just cause existence? I don't think so. That'd be how I'd continue the conversation, at least. You get a sticker. Which I cannot give you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am not an expert in, in physics either to explain that. But from my simpleton's understanding of this, Let's pretend there were multiple universes. The question is, is there anything in any of these universes that explains its own existence? If, if, there, if the other universes are like ours, then we haven't solved any other problem. We've just moved it back one more nail, you know? Maybe there's another nail above ours. Okay, well, where did it get its, its existence from? Which is a fascinating thing to, to dive into in terms of physics, you know? By all means, full steam ahead with that hypothesis, but, but I don't know how it gets us out of the metaphysical issue of that. Um, did I restate that question? No, I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, you raise your hand up first. So I might be just It's a great question. So the, the question is, if God is so good and God is so great, why would he keep us from, satis from experiencing full satisfaction here on earth? One of the simplest answers is he wants lovers, not robots. He wants you to want him. So he conceals himself so as, so as to increase your desire. Think of it this, one, this way, ladies, right? If, do you want, um, if you're looking for a guy, do you want him just to, do you want it to be easy for him? Or do you want him to want you and pursue you? Which one, which one is more attractive, the one that pursues you. Why? It's because the heart that loves. Well, if that's true on a human level with relationships, why wouldn't it be true of God? And that happens to also be the Christian answer, right? Yeah. Maybe to make one, one stipulation about that. If we answer from philosophy, we can make a guess if we start playing from what Jesus has revealed, we can give a much more specific answer, right? We can, at least we can answer with much more directness. That's a great question. Yeah. I guess the question is, with the, the onset of, and the, the progress of science and the discovery of stem cells, um, it would seem that well, how does, that, how does that interface with the argument from contingency? Not being, again, I'd have to ask more, and I would defer to people that know more about stem cells, but my understanding it is of those is that you still have to get those stem cells from a human, and that human cell has to have the capacity for it. Even if they're doing something to the human cell to make a non-stem cell a stem cell, 
the fact that it's human still has its potential. And you can still ask the question, where did that cell get its existence from? It's not like those cells just, at least to my knowledge, it's not like they just poof into existence. The scientist has to actually take something else and, and give it existence. Or am, or am I missing something about the science that, you, that you're aware of that I'm not? I, I, think, I think, yeah, the, the answer would be always ask more questions. But I don't think, and I could be wrong, um, I'd love to learn, but I don't think those existence are coming from nothing. Something else with existence is giving existence to those cells. It's a, it's a good question. Sure. So someone could say to the, the argument, because the argument from the question is, someone could re, uh, give a rebuttal to the argument from desire that I don't have a desire for something more than this world. I'm perfectly happy in this world. To be perfectly frank, there's nothing you can say to rebut that except, really? Are you perfectly happy? That's amazing. In fact, maybe probably a better way, a better way to do it, a much more honest way, and I don't mean this in a snarky way, could you teach me? Teach me, how is it that you were that happy? Because that would truly be a novel thing. And there, I think we just got to, you kind of bank on, the fa on what we know about the human heart, that we're made for more, to borrow the phrase, right? Um, and if someone's perfectly happy, maybe the question is, I, I don't know, just logistically speaking, are they numbing or are they medicating some desires to keep them down? You know, one of the reasons people love to smoke weed is because they take, it takes away their anxiety. In a world that's full of anxiety, that's full of nihilism, smoke, hey, that, um, you think this is funny, like, it's full of nihilism, it's, it makes perfect sense for us as a culture to want to medicate ourselves entirely. I must have missed a joke. <laughs> that is a great question. Um, and I'm going to defer to a little bit. You, sh you need to ask Patrick that question, too. Come to his sessions and ask him that, because what he's talking about the human person, there's, the, here's, the, here's my quick answer to it. When you, look, <laughs> when you look at the human person, just on like a, call it a scientific level, or a philosophical level, like leave religion out of it for a second, and you just look at the human person with the human desires and the human capacity, Happiness from a classical standpoint is when you do everything to fulfill your nature. So that's, that's Aristotle's answer for, for happiness. And it's, it has everything to do with the anthropology. What is a human being? The other answer that you can give is you start, well, let's say there is a God. Has God ever said anything on the issue of perfect happiness? And if, if the answer is yes, and if Jesus is who he says he is, he said a lot about it. Um, so again, you tunnel from both directions for that answer. And you look into your own heart and you ask, has anything made me perfectly happy? And, and you start digging in, that, in those places. That's, that's a great question. Other questions you got? Yeah? Are you raising your hand? Sorry, it just seemed like you were raising your hand. So, yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, the, the question is for our listeners at home, if we found a physical thing 
that had always that had always been there. Um, would that be a sufficient answer for it? Well, I think if you found that thing, you would start asking a lot of questions, and you might even start asking religious questions of that thing. Um, you might start asking, from whence did it come? You know, or because it would be a, it'd be a really fascinating thing to find a physical thing because. By the definition of physical, we mean something that can change, right? At least that's the scientific understanding of it. So it sounds like a contradiction in terms, honestly, to me. Okay, that's a good question. The answer is yes, it is. For the same reason that the triangle, when my son Gabriel asked, but Daddy, why does a triangle have three sides? It's clear that he hasn't grasped what the triangle is. If someone says, but why does God have to exist? It's clear that person hasn't really grasped what we mean by God. What we mean by God is something that exists in his essence. He is the explanation of his own existence. To ask why does he have to exist, you say, that's the definition of God. But they say, but why? Because that's what it is. That's what God is. It's like saying, but why does a triangle have three sides? It's because that's the definition of a triangle. But why, Dad? Tell me why. That's, that's triangleness. I, I, I can, I can, like, that's godness, that's triangleness. You can say the same thing. It's clear that we haven't connected with what we mean by that. It's a good question. Father, we're getting close to the end, right? I don't know. I don't know. At least the question is it seems like there's not only just one food that satisfies our natural desires, there's not just one drink that satisfies our. our our desires for thirst, how is it that we're going to say there's just one God? The answer is we're not saying that. We're just saying there's something beyond this world that satisfies your desires. The point is this, and I, I'm glad you're, we're closing on this. When we talk about proofs for God's existence, Peter Craved likes to put it this way, we are proving only a very thin slice of everything the Christian means about God. In other words, all we're doing with these proofs is saying, look, it's not stupid to look outside the universe. It seems perfectly reasonable that there's more to the world than what meets the eye. And the idea that it's just what's in the universe is not the final word. And if we're looking beyond the universe, now we got a conversation. Does that make sense? Because now you start asking, all right, well, there is, maybe there is something outside of this universe. Can I know him or it? Can this thing outside the universe interface and communicate with me? Has it ever spoken for himself? What do the religions, all the world religions say about this thing outside the universe? It just so happens that there's only one religion in which that thing outside claims to have come inside. And that man with that claim is Jesus, which is why the next session is why Jesus. Does that make sense? It's great. It was a good place to end. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys.